0: Hello, and welcome to the Balance and Falls podcast. And today we're interviewing Brian Harris, the co-founder and CEO of MedRhythms. He's also the co-founder of the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, Arts, and Neuroscience Networking Group. A quick reminder that the purpose of our Balance and Falls SIG podcast series is to share information on research and and programs with our members. This podcast series, has the goals of increasing networking collaborations and knowledge translation that facilitate improved identification of balance deficits and fall risks and reduce preventable falls in populations with neurologic impairment. So now onto our discussion with Brian. And Brian, I'm gonna start by just giving you a little noise to see if you recognize
1: <laughs> I'd recognize that anywhere. <laughs> the beautiful sound of drumsticks.
0: It is. So, Brian Harris, like I said, is the co founder and CEO of MedRhythms. And those drumstick noises are Zildjian uh, Thomas, pr- did I say it right? Pigeon Prid- mm-hmm. uh, drumsticks that were given out at the Strokestra at one of the events he created at ACRM. What was that, back in 2018?
1: Yeah, that was uh, 2017, I believe. Yeah.
0: 2017, where you had people from England come and included the, an orchestra and people with stroke and caregivers uh, who used the instruments. And we had our own stroke orchestra. And being in the audience, I was a member of the orchestra and I loved it.
1: Yes. It's a remarkable, remarkable organization um, in England. Actually, the Stroke Orchestra organization that builds this community orchestra based on uh, of people who are living with stroke in the community, but also. Um, of professional musicians. They have a, uh, a relationship with the Royal Philharmonic. And we said, what, a, what an amazing opportunity for us at ACRM to um, to build on that. And we invited them to Atlanta, and we were able to work with some of the local hospitals in Atlanta to get local stroke survivors and to do this impromptu, just uh, amazing uh, uh, musician led, um, but amazing group of, of, of music happening. And as you said, the people that came to watch, you know, nobody comes and watches anything related <laughs> to music therapy without engaging in it as well. So we had a lot of fun.
0: Yes, and I'll tell you that conductor was not gentle because he was working <laughs> with people with stroke or a, a, a novice audience. He was a taskmaster.
1: <laughs> yes, and really it was a remarkable outcome over two days of, of working with these stroke survivors and the impact that even just the two days had was just remarkable.
0: Yeah, Um, so with that, I just wanna give a quick introduction about what uh, I think we're talking about today, make sure I'm still on the right page. Uh, So what you are gonna talk about today are examples of neuroscience music therapy interventions and research using NMT and RAS um, and its variants to improve gait and balance in people with neurologic impairments. And the topics today are gonna be a little bit about your background, some of your mentors and influences that led to your current business model and some of your research and uh, technology development, I understand, mm-hmm. as well as your professional service and advocacy projects. Was, uh, the next topic will be highlights of some of your current work related to balance and fall prevention and populations with neurologic impairments. And then the last part will be future focus, upcoming development, outreach, and goals, including, as I understand, uh, your presentation in APTA's CSM 2020 in Colorado, which I'm very excited to hear more about. So with that, why don't we start and um, first I probably should have you define NMT and RAS so I don't mess up the the words I always do and then tell me a little bit about your background.
1: Sure, so yeah, so yeah just to, I guess to start with uh, my background I am a, a board-certified music therapist uh, which for those who may not be familiar um, music therapy as a profession started in about the 1950s um, and over the last five to six decades um, has really advanced um, through advancements in neuroscience and neuroimaging research that has shown the profound impacts that music can have on the brain. So within this field of music therapy, as I said, I have a board certification that's much like uh, physical therapy or occupational therapy or speech therapy, except the mode is live music. Um, And Um, Then within that field, there is a uh, additional certification that's called neurologic music therapy, which is this approach to music therapy that's purely based upon objective uh, research in neuroscience, demonstrating how music can impact non-musical functions. So treating things like movement, language, and cognition, following any sort of neurodisease or injury. Um, And then as we think about, as this relates to balance and falls, um, you know, the the highlight of the the intervention that we'll be talking about today is an intervention that's called rhythmic auditory stimulation. Um, And rhythmic auditory stimulation, uh, which we we can get into more as we go along, is based upon some foundational uh, neuroscience research in the 1970s, demonstrating how rhythm can activate the motor system. And then since about the mid 1990s, we've seen the clinical translation of that into this intervention called rhythmic auditory stimulation, demonstrating its efficacy across neuroinjury disease states, including MS and stroke and Parkinson's disease and traumatic brain injury and CP. Um, and that sort of brings us to where we are today. Um, and you know, part of my background is trying to figure out how do we bring more access to this, um, to people, people who need it. Um, I started my career at uh, Spalding Rehab Hospital in Boston, where I was their first neurologic music therapist and built their program on their brain injury and stroke units, um, treating patients, as I said, hands-on on uh, on their units, working a lot in collaboration uh, and co-treatment with physical therapists as well. And what we started to see was that people were getting better faster uh, with greater results, And we now had the neuroscience to not only explain how it was possible, but also how we replicate these results in a standardized way being through rhythmic auditory stimulation. And what we found was that very quickly, after starting this program, that uh, the demand for the services, because of the outcomes, both within the inpatient setting at Spalding um, from doctors, writing scripts and writing orders for uh, the RAS and for neurologic music therapy that we, couldn't keep up with demand within the hospital, but then also having these discussions with patients and their family members where they'd say, You know, Brian, you helped my dad walk again. How do I get more of this when I leave the hospital? And as a clinician, that was one of the most challenging conversations that I would have uh, in a day to day basis is, you know, I got into this field to help people. Um, and having that conversation with them of saying, You know, when you leave the hospital, there's really not much that can be done outside of this because. As you can imagine, there aren't many music therapists out there in the world, particularly ones who are trained in this neuroscience uh, of music. And then also with challenges around um, reimbursement and these types of things, it was just a challenge. And so we started MedRhythms as a way of trying to meet that need, um, initially as a therapy practice. So we hired other music therapists to expand our clinical care. Um, We now staff the program at, at Spalding Rehab Hospital throughout their network from inpatient to outpatient and in-home, actually across LTAC, so long-term acute care to inpatient rehab to outpatient rehab. We also do in-home care as well. And um, as you said, which we'll get into in a bit, now we're figuring out how do we even take this to the next level of of access and how do we figure out how to bring this to more people? And we're developing digital therapeutics to replicate rhythmic auditory stimulation in the home environment to be able to bring this to people who we feel need and, and deserve to have it.
0: Wow, that is pretty amazing. How many uh, therapists and how broad of a service area does MedRhythms reach?
1: Yeah, so right now we are, um, not including myself, we have five full-time clinicians, um, in the, primarily in the greater Boston area and also in upstate New York. Um, and uh, we're hiring a sixth right now, but we are generally throughout New England and then uh, into New York as well. So, I'm just a little too far <laughs> <laughs> just barely, but you know maybe we'll get there, uh, maybe we'll get there soon.
0: Yeah, I hope so so that's a wonderful uh, background that you've shared, and um, before we move on, I, I thought one more um, definition might be helpful, and it's something that still fascinates me and I, I continue to wrap my head around it to understand it on a deeper level, and that's the idea of entrainment mm. that uh, that I think is a topic that you have a great strength in explaining. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about entrainment and how that power of music, um, as well as expectancy theory, I guess I'm throwing two definitions at you, um, come into play uh, before we talk a little bit more about um, your current work in Bounce Falls and- Sure.
1: Yeah, so this this idea of entrainment or what the research has shown is really the foundation of rhythmic auditory stimulation and essentially, it was shown in the uh, mid 1970s for the first time that you could use an external rhythmic cue to cue movement in the human brain. And essentially, what rhythm or what uh, entrainment is, is what they've shown is that when the human brain hears a steady rhythm that repeats at a consistent pace in the environment, so think about that as a metronome click or perhaps, uh, you know, popular music, your favorite songs that have this sort of consistent rhythm, that the rhythm, because it's an external auditory cue, it activates the auditory system, which makes sense because it's an auditory cue. But they've actually shown now that the auditory system and the motor system are connected at a subconscious level, um, which means that we now can use this external rhythmic cue to also engage the motor system via the auditory system. And so what we've seen is that when the auditory system and the motor system sort of fire in synchrony, we see auditory, mor- mo- auditory neurons and motor neurons start to fire in synchrony, that's what we call entrainment. And what we've seen is that entrainment happens in the vast majority of the human population, regardless of age, culture, or ability, or disability, that when we as humans hear an external rhythmic stimulus that's consistent, it activates our motor system, telling our brain to tell our body to move. That is something that happens at a subconscious level, but where this gets really interesting in terms of how it's clinically applied is that they've now shown that people who have damage to the motor system, whether it's Parkinson's disease, MS, stroke, et cetera, that we can actually use rhythm as this external cue to cue or create pathways around that damage to help the person function more at baseline. And so entrainment really is this auditory motor synchrony that uh, you know, as we call it, and as we, uh, I give these presentations you know, throughout the world about uh, the neuroscience of music, really talking about this is this is the mechanism of action, if you will, of, of the music intervention. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about mechanism of actions a lot in uh, pharmaceutical world of how does a drug actually work um, and chemically respond to the brain. And when we think about music as an intervention or music as the sti- direct stimulation on the brain, Entrainment really is that mechanism of action that allows the intervention to work and drives the outcome.
0: That's really helpful the way that you explained it, and I'll never forget having I think it was Dr. Sernage um, uh, and Ben Folds at the ACRM conference where you demonstrated this, and uh, the the goal was to try to not walk to the rhythm, and with right. Ben Folds playing on the piano, and it. People just couldn't do it. Like they, they fell into that rhythm and walked at that pace. Some of the most powerful things I, that I think use this, uh, and get this and get that effect are in Parkinson's where you'll see somebody who can barely walk across their, you know, their kitchen or their home. Um, and then the, they'll put music on that is something the person likes and they are walking and they're dancing and they've got fluid movement Um, which is just amazing. So thank you for
1: explaining that. Uh, The other idea
0: was expectancy violation. I hope you could talk a little bit about.
1: Yeah, uh, of course. And, you know, just to add one thing about the entrainment, what's really interesting about that is um, that demonstration that you saw that we did at ACRM. And I'm very uh, uh, thankful that Ben Folds was such a, a willing participant and such a great collaborator for that presentation. But, you know, as Every presentation that I've ever given about the music and neuroscience, I do that demonstration where I pick somebody random out of the crowd and and have them try to walk to the beat of the music. Um, And we have them walk to the beat of the music a couple of times, and then we have them try to not walk to the beat of the music. And really, in order for us to not walk to the beat of the music, we have to come up with some sort of cognitive strategy to either not listen to what's in our environment, so completely distract our minds, Um, Or just take off running at a random pace and move our bodies all over the place. And I'm I'm
0: thinking about how I would do this if I try to best you. And I think I'd have to have a different rhythm than I was humming in my own head.
1: (laughs) Yes, you have to. And and that's sort of the power of this because, because the entrainment, as I talked about, happens at a subconscious level. We don't have to think about the engagement of the motor system. That the rhythm is literally driving the motor system to a certain outcome to move a certain way. So in order for us to not do that, we have to have a, a cognitive interference in order for it to not work, which is really just amazing. And like I said, I've done that hundreds of times at presentations around the world, and it's <laughs> never not worked. Um, so it, it's, pretty, it, it's pretty amazing. That's and fun. We, and then I guess to, to, to answer your, your next question about this idea of an expectancy violation, and the way that we think about this is um, – rhythmic structure, or I guess we could think about structure in in any sort of way, but particularly musical structure and rhythmic structure uh, creates temporal patterns to drive our brain towards certain expectations within music. So when we think about this, we think a lot about um, how music is sort of formed with phrases um, around certain harmonies and uh, certain melodies and certain uh, chord progressions, which give us An expectancy of what's about to happen. Um, You know, if we think about the first time that we ever listen to a song um, that we've never heard before, we know based upon the cues that are happening in the music in terms of rhythmic phrasing, in terms of harmonic phrasing, in terms of chord progressions, that there's something coming next because the music is driving us to pay attention to something that's coming next. And we create this temporal expectation of future events that are gonna happen. Um, and we think about that a lot in terms of, uh, I always explain, if you think about singing to a baby, uh, for the first time and you sing twinkle, twinkle, little star, you know, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you, and you stop at that moment. What we have just done is we created a temporal expectation of what was about to happen, but then we stopped it in an unlikely spot. So we didn't finish the word are twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you, and if we leave that space open, we call that an expectancy violation. And what we oftentimes see from our patients, and you'll notice this in, a, in babies as well, is even if the baby doesn't know that song, they will have some sort of cognitive response, whether it's eye opening or looking around, because we as humans know that harmonically and rhythmically the song was not supposed to stop there. And what that helps to do is to actually produce an outcome. So we can use music in this way and then stop it, creating an expectancy violation, which helps to produce um, a, a goal response, if you will.
0: So, so Brian, uh, being a, a neuro stroke and, and brain injury uh, clinician, that makes me think of two things, because now I'm teaching as I finish my PhD, with, with my students, if I'm losing them, if I am using a, a, pros- a prosody of speech, and then I stop abruptly, Um, I'll cue them out of their default mode of uh, their neurologic default mode uh, cognitively, where they might be really kind of off in the clouds and I'll grab their attention for a second where I can get them back. Uh, And I'm wondering if that that fits. So that's where that supervisor comes in and says, hey, wait a minute, I need to actually pay attention.
1: Absolutely. And I think what we think about, you know, as we think about this expectancy violation in music, it's very helpful because music is naturally chunked and naturally phrased to create these uh, modules of expectancy of what's about to happen. When we think about just coordinated speech or, or, or um, I don't want to call it random speech, but we think about non-musical forms of of that this could take, I think absolutely the more that we change the stimulation in our environment. So, you know, if it is talking in the middle of a sentence and then stopping, (laughs) unlikely, it actually creates this awareness or this attention mechanism um, cognitively for the folks that are listening, that we know that the sentence was not supposed to stop right there where it it was. And it doesn't actually have to be, the violation doesn't have to be speaking versus non-speaking. It could be speaking loud, it could be speaking softly, it could be changing the sensory information that your listeners are getting to create this violation, which helps to reset that attention to task.
0: That's what uh, people that are great in rhetoric, I think, really have cued into that. The, the other thing, the clinical example that that makes me think of that's really a profound help is in brain injury and stroke where people have uh, decreased attention, right? So in that hierarchy of attention, uh, they really are struggling and they might phase in and out. And so doing things in my speech or with music, um, that might grab their attention back in in little bits, I can piece together a much more successful um, treatment.
1: Absolutely. And we do that a lot as neurologic music therapists using improvisation in music, because in improvisation, the clinician can actually provide a rhythmic structure, but that rhythmic structure is always changing. And so if the the patient is engaging with us in this intervention, we can change tempo, we can change volume, we can stop it in different places. And that helps to always constantly reset that attention. And we see vastly improved, you know, sustained attention outcomes in those types of
0: things. Oh, I love uh, it. And then that makes me think of call and response, which I know in jazz, you're kind of doing that, right? If you're riffing between people, you're gonna do a part and then I'm supposed to respond. And if you can, mm. can you talk about how you do that in a patient scenario?
1: Absolutely, I mean, we do a lot of, uh, you know, for thinking about, you know, switching the mode here to thinking about cognition and, you know, even at a very basic level in terms of sustained attention. What we might start with is actually engaging somebody in um, playing at the piano for example, they don't need to know how to play the piano. I can tell them which notes to hit and they can play randomly on those notes and we can uh, structure it that way. But we do a lot of things where you know, we would uh, play together um, and I would say, hey, follow me. And that's the only cue I give. What does that mean? We don't know, we're gonna get, let, it, let them interpret what follow me means. And so I might start playing slowly, having them follow me play slowly, then I might play faster without giving verbal cues, only giving them the musical cues to allow them to drive this. And then actually stopping, starting, stopping, starting. Once we get through that exercise and we're able to do that successfully, we could absolutely get into this. I like how you uh, correlated this to jazz. You know, we could get into this call and response where I play for for, four measures, then you play for four measures. And what's so uh, uh, beneficial, I think, about the music in that scenario is, A, it doesn't require any level of language processing in order to do this. This is a, you know, a nonverbal intervention. Um, But in addition to that is that the music literally creates these temporal structures by which we get predictability. So the patient knows when the next uh, phase is coming that they're supposed to play and then temporally knows when they're supposed to stop. And in doing that, particularly with improvisation, it really helps us to sustain that attention and to get in this turn-taking, sustained attention, alternating attention between multiple stimuli coming in, and really can be a powerful intervention.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. And you're, you're queuing in onto all of my favorite areas of uh, neurotherapy, which is those hierarchy of attention, right? Mm-hmm. Just to get any focus at all and then to sustain it would be that next level of the hierarchy, then to... Um, alternate it between different things would be yet another level higher. And uh, when people are struggling with that first one, uh, pulling that along and and extending the amount of focus um, to to get to sustained and then get to alternating, which that call and response that you just discussed uh, would be doing is, it's just magical to watch people start to come back after a a severe brain injury or stroke where you get those attentional um, uh, developments back so let's let 's bring this down to the feet and, yes. and walking so let 's talk about how you use this and some of your work with uh, balance falls, posture, weight shifting, all of that good stuff
1: yeah, absolutely. so as we think about um, you know coming down to walking and, and I like that coming down to our feet, um, the clinical application of this idea of entrainment uh, is called rhythmic auditory stimulation, as I mentioned, this has been studied. Uh, a cross-diagnosis uh, showing uh, its efficacy and things like CP and stroke and brain injury and MS and Parkinson's disease. Um, I think it's probably wa- most widely understood in Parkinson's disease. I think there's a lot of physical therapists out there that have uh, been trained on metronome therapy and these types of things. But essentially what we're, what we're looking at is um, to improve uh, parameters in terms of things like cadence, velocity, symmetry, variability, uh, stride length. These are sort of the goal areas. And the way that rhythmic auditory stimulation works is that, uh, you know, at baseline, we're collecting all of these parameters clinically of how fast they're walking, what their cadence is, what their stride length is, what their symmetry is, etc. And then we start music uh, or a rhythmic uh, stimuli. So this could be a metronome. It could be um, user preferred music. It could be um, some sort of something in between there as well. We start the music or the rhythmic stimulus at the tempo that the the person is walking or that the patient is walking. So if they're walking at 65 steps per minute, we can start the music at 65 beats per minute. We then see their level of safety, their ability to entrain or to walk to the beat of the music as they do that and they're safe. Um, You know, if you look at the stroke population, for example, in most cases, we're trying to speed them up in terms of velocity. So after they've walked to the beat of the music and they've entrained and they're safe, we then increase the tempo of the music by about 5% to push them to walk faster. So this is a stimulus-driven intervention. We're not necessarily following the patient. Once we've taken the baseline parameters, we're then giving them a stimulus to drive them to walk faster. And this process is is done over time rapidly um, to improve baseline function. And what we've actually seen is that with RAS, we can change that baseline function from speed and symmetry Velocity um, cadence from day one compared to end of treatment. So, we actually see very good um, carryover outcomes. As this relates to balance and falls, we get very uh, excited because, um, you know, as we know from the current literature around falls, and as, you know, the physical therapists out there listening well know, the things that are most correlated to falls are gait speed and gait variability. Those are two of the elements that we know that we're improving from rhythmic auditory stimulation. So, by virtue of the transitive property, we say, sure, we can impact um, fall risk. What's getting more interesting now is um, Dr. Michael Taut, uh, who is the founder of Neurologic Music Therapy and was the one that helped to protocolize rhythmic auditory stimulation and has done most of the um, research in this area. Uh, last fall actually looked at rhythmic auditory stimulation for the reduction of falls in Parkinson's disease. And he had a really interesting uh, uh, study design, it was called a randomized withdrawal study, where he demonstrated two things. One, that rhythmic auditory stimulation improved uh, all of those uh, spatial temporal parameters, improved speed, etc. Then he showed that it also improved uh, the, or I guess, decreased the number of falls in the intervention group and uh, reduced uh, fear of falling as well. But what was interesting about the withdrawal study, which meant that the control group got the intervention for eight weeks, then they removed the intervention for eight weeks, and then they re, uh, gave them the control group, the intervention for the final eight weeks versus the intervention group who got 24 straight weeks of, mm-hmm. of intervention. What they showed was that during that withdrawal period, that literal number of falls, fear of falling went up and biomechanics decreased. But in that second eight-week period where they re-administered the the stimulus, they showed a reversal of those, which shows that not only does it impact falls, but that also that you can reintroduce a therapeutic benefit 16 weeks into the intervention. So a really compelling case for looking at how RES directly impacts uh, fall risk.
0: Oh, that's a very interesting study. I'll make sure I get the details of that, so we can put that up on our website to go along with this podcast. Yes. So um, that is a great study, and I always like to ask about how fall risk or um, how falls are measured. Uh, was it a, a, a ongoing calendar? Were there check-in points? How how did that work in that study?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I know that it was largely, I mean, it was a subjective measure of, uh, of falls. I actually don't know if it was a diary or if this was a daily check-in with them. I, I don't know the answer to that.
0: That's okay. And that's, it's so hard to measure that when it's people actually outliving their lives right to collect this data.
1: Correct. Um, that's the challenge of fall studies, right?
0: So that'll be something for our listeners to read the link that I'll make sure goes up with this podcast. So, um, Talk a little bit more about rhythmic auditory stimulation, and uh, I think you, you're actually working on developing some technology to help us harness this, and then also if you can talk a little bit about how uh, the, the large amount of physical therapists that will be listening to this podcast as it is on the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapies Bounce and Fall SIG. Um, uh, what, how, how would they use this, or, or how would they connect with music therapists when it's beyond what they would be able to do in their scope of practice.
1: Yeah. So great, great question there. And and as I mentioned, you know, when we in the clinic saw these benefits of rhythmic auditory stimulation, you know, there are about 3000 people in the world um, that are trained in neurologic music therapy. And so all the physical therapists out there know how small that is compared to how many physical therapists there are in the world and particularly in the US. And you know, there's a very large scale difference there. And so it really came down to this reality of while we want collaboration with neurologic music therapists and physical therapists, there will be parts of the world and parts of the US that don't, simply don't have access to this level of expertise. And so what was really important to us is we said, how do we bring this to those people? Um, and the answer was technology. And so what we've done at Medrhythms is we've built um, a digital therapeutic platform. So you can think about the term digital therapeutic as you know a therapeutic being something like a drug or uh, you know, a pharmaceutical, and this just being a software form of a therapeutic. And so what the platform that we've built does is it we have sensors that connect to the shoe. So one goes on each shoe that collect clinical grade biomechanics uh, in real time. That data is then sent into our algorithm, which is based upon a smartphone. And then we change or we augment user preferred music in real time, giving it rhythmic stimulus that it needs in certain places. Um, And then the user listens to um, the music via headphones. So in this sort of closed loop continuous system where the data is consistently coming in, we, uh, with the technology, are are tracking uh, real time entrainment. So we know step to step whether the person is walking to the beat or not. We also know in real time what their variability and their symmetry are. So more of a quality of gait. And then we have clinical responses that happen when quality of gait decreases or entrainment decreases as well. Um, One of the interesting things about uh, the actual music parameters is there's now some interesting uh, research about RAS that demonstrates that your brain functionally responds better to music that you like, and that there's actually increased uh, outcomes possible with RES using familiar music. So for us, what we wanted to do was build a product that used familiar music. And so we have the technical capacity to do that. Um, And what we're we're building this for is really for those people who don't have access to the neurologic music therapist who have the expertise to do this. And so this is something that we're building actually to be used in home. So it could be used autonomously without a clinician, but also could be used in the clinic with a physical therapist as well as the physical therapist seemed appropriate. Um, And as we've done some initial studies, we are um, building these things to be FDA regulated to be prescription products with claims. I mean, that was very important to us that, that, that that's the way that we build these products. Um, and we've done some initial feasibility studies that have shown some, some compelling outcomes of our product, which um, as you mentioned, we will be presenting at um, CSM in 2020 with the outcomes of those studies, but we've seen at least in our stroke product with uh, in our stroke product for our, our feasibility studies, some, some really compelling results there. So really trying to harness the power of technology and algorithms to replicate what we see in the clinic to enable access to this in home, but also enable uh, physical therapists to have access to this as well.
0: Wow, that sounds very exciting! So this will be—I'm going to guess—one of the innovation uh, tech platforms uh, that they have in the adjacent or in the expo hall, maybe
1: at CSM. So we are still a—you know—we are still a bit off from. Uh, commercialization of product, because we have to go through this, uh, you know, the FDA process, and we're in the midst of a, a, of a clinical trial right now uh, for the FDA uh, submission. But what we will be doing at CSM is we will be presenting um, the results of the feasibility study, mm. but then I will also be there with a few colleagues uh, giving a, a presentation, um, I believe it's two hours, on rhythmic auditory stimulation as a way of trying to actually give physical therapists, translatable skills to incorporate into practice.
0: Oh, so, good. I'm sure you'll have us singing and walking to the beat. <laughs> well, we,
1: can, <laughs> we can only hope.
0: <laughs> so, um, if I'm understanding correctly the technology, it's um, kind of almost like an orthotic, something that would fit inside the shoe, maybe go up a little bit onto the ankle, but not, not very big or cumbersome. Um, yeah, it's a
1: very small, it's actually a very small sensor that connects to the shoe. So it actually clips onto any shoe, um, almost unnoticeable, unless you knew that it was there. Um, it sits on the shoelaces, and then um, the, the user walks, um, and, you know, it's connected to an app that's on a smartphone. Um, so then you basically hit start with the app, and the the product does the rest.
0: Oh, is that brilliant. Um, and the, I guess, so I was blurring it with another very interesting um, research technology innovation that I've come to know about. Uh, Diane Risley and, and a, a group of researchers has developed something called Waukesins. I don't know if you've heard about that.
1: I have heard of them.
0: Oh, you have? Okay, good, because um, I could just, I love multisensory, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I, I always try to explain to uh, the, the the DPT students that I now teach in neuro, That it's really helpful to always think about the fact that we started with like single little handful of cells and now all of our outer sensory experience has to feed that that nervous system right it's still the core of where all the decision making is coming from and what needs the info so um, adding some vibratory sense to people's feet. Um, and, you know, we will, in PT, we'll do things like add cuff weights, right, to, to get more proprioceptive input when we measure that that seems to be a deficit. But the combination of these things is very exciting. Um, I also think about some of the things that uh, established companies like Lightgate, I think, even have these. There's um, um, switches that light up and they can do different light patterns and you can, you um, Using magnets, they can be stuck to walls, they can be suspended, they can be put on the floor, and you can have a person have to step in a pattern and do all these things. But the idea of combining it with uh, a rhythmic auditory STEM uh, device that is on the shoe is just so exciting to me to help move people forward, uh, especially with an impaired nervous system, uh, to get back, stepping, unfreezing of gait, you know, oh, wow. um, all of that.
1: It is very interesting to think about, um, you know, obviously we come at this from a purely auditory standpoint for now. That's our expertise is understanding the, you know, the music and um, understanding the neuroscience of the music. But, you know, there's, there are a lot of these new technologies, which I think are very promising. There's some early research, you know, looking also at, as you mentioned, haptic feedback and how that can improve some of these disease states. And I have seen also the, the products around uh, light for, for Parkinson's disease and these types of things. And I, I get excited about the future of the world where <clears throat> we can start to think about uh, combining these modes to provide a really full sensory uh, input to these folks, whether it's Parkinson's disease or stroke or across the neuro board, um, and even in aging, You know, thinking about how these things can be applied to the healthy brain uh, as well. And if you looked at ACRM presentations this year as, as well, there was a number of presentations on things like augmented reality, and virtual reality and how could all of this sensory input be within the right way be used to uh, improve outcomes. And I think that what's so great about the technology and where technology is going today in the world of healthcare is one, is that it's providing uh, opportunities for access, right? We know that PTs uh, are one of the most in demand professions in, in the country because there's an aging population and a need for that level of care. But we think, well, how does, technology help us reach more people in healthcare and there's gonna be a growing need for that. But the other piece about technology that I get really excited about is the the potential for the technology to collect the data that's necessary to demonstrate in the real world how our interventions are impacting them and how the interventions can actually be used to better impact them more. Maybe it's predictively or diagnostically, but could we combine things like haptic feedback and, AR and VR and auditory stimulation to provide the best opportunity for our patients to, um, to improve. And I think that the data that we collect from the technology will help us answer some of these questions in the real world, which I get very excited about. Wow, do you
0: have an estimated time uh, course for your FDA?
1: As much as you could guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean that's um, that's a loaded question. Um, we certainly have certain timelines that uh, you know that we're we're looking at. Um, it likely will be into 2021 before our first product is is ready for commercialization. Um, oh, that's so, a
0: reasonable amount of time. Okay.
1: Yeah, I mean there's clinical trials and uh, you know the FDA process and things like that, but we're looking into 2021 um, for the first product.
0: Wow. So Brian, that is very helpful. And I I think you've already kind of segued into that last part, uh, the last topic of future focus, upcoming development, outreach, and goals. Mm -hmm. But is there anything I've not uh, made a point to ask about that you want to share?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, when we think about, I'll I'll answer this twofold. Um, Number one is, as we think about from our own company perspective, is, you know, we're building this first product in Stroke what we're going to be looking at now is for actually clinical partners to help us study this in other disease states. So looking at MS, looking at Parkinson's disease, looking at the aging population and CP and brain injury and cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's, is we want to build products that benefit people across the healthcare continuum. And so as we think about what's next for us, it's really these collaborations in the clinic to build out these uh, products and get some early data there. I think from a more macro level than that, um, big part of my job, uh, you know, as the co-founder and CEO, one is obviously, uh, you know, operations of company, but two is advocacy. And two is making people aware across the healthcare continuum from physical therapists to physiatrists to neurologists, the understanding of the importance that music can have, not just for quality of life but from a really true deep neuroscience perspective that we can improve outcomes in a way that other interventions can't with the implementation of music. And so that's why we were so excited about this this networking group of the arts and neuroscience at ACRM was to really bring a lot of people together, both for advocacy, number one, um, but also to think about how can we then collaborate interdisciplinary collaboration to really push this um, this, this field forward. And so that's why I get excited about, um, coming to places like APTA. Um, this will be my first time, you know, presenting at APTA. So I'm very excited about that. And ACRM of really just bringing people outside of the world of uh, music therapy and neurologic music therapy together around this idea that this could be helpful. So I look forward to more opportunities to do these types of things in terms of advocacy, because I think that's, that's equally as important as developing products and, uh, and ways to access it is people need to know that it's there.
0: Yes. And uh, I mean, I, I love that the beginnings of your company go back to unmet needs of patients at Spalding, where you were one of the first or the first uh, neurologic music therapist on, on staff, and people needed more, and there wasn't any more. So you've helped uh, develop that need at least for those East coasters, but we'll see. We'll get you to move more Midwest.
1: (laughs) That's, that's where we'll start, you know, and then, you know, we'll, we'll grow from there. And it's really been a, an incredibly rewarding journey uh, in this process so far of starting a company. You know, I didn't start a company because I wanted to be, be a CEO of a, you know, of a tech company in healthcare. I started the company because I saw a need and really had this sort of driven passion to figure out how do we help people. And we have a vision of helping people across the globe, Um, you know, and there's, a stepwise function to get there. Um, But that's really sort of the root of this and hopefully giving people access to something that we think that they need and and deserve to have.
0: Oh, well, that's wonderful. And I really appreciate you sharing uh, some of the exciting technological developments as well as uh, a a really excellent study on rhythmic auditory stimulation in reducing fall risk with us in this uh, all too fast hour that's going Mm -hmm. by. Um, as we close, I want to make sure people know how to reach out to you, both patients and also clinicians that might want more information. Can you give your contact information?
1: Absolutely. So if you look, uh, the two we have two websites. Um, actually, one is called uh, www.medrhythms.com. M-E-D-R-H-Y-T-H-M-S.com. I always like to spell it out because Rhythm is a very difficult word to uh, spell in most cases. And so it's www.medrhythms.com is the website that we have for our digital therapeutic that we're building. We also have www.medrhythmstherapy.com, which is for our therapy practice of clinicians that we operate. So those are two separate websites. We also have resources on there in terms of we have videos of rhythmic auditory stimulation. We also have um, articles there that uh, about the background and the clinical research in RES as well. So those can be resources. Um, and my uh, email is brian at And I'm happy to um, field questions of, of folks that if they have any, this is what I love to do. And I do it night and day and everything in between. And so I'd be happy to be a resource if people have specific questions about their patients or how they can get involved. We'd love to have the conversation.
0: Thank you, Brian. And do you know what uh, time window you're uh, at at CSM? Or I guess people can still just look you up by speaker name. Uh,
1: yes. I don't know off the top of my head. That's OK. So that, they they yes. can
0: look you up and find out where to see what I'm sure is going to be a very engaging presentation at CSM. Uh, I can say that speaking from experience of going to the last five years of, I mm. think, of the ACM Arts and Neuroscience where you've had me. Um, dancing with hip-hop artists What is it, derek derek merrifield and um yeah and also mary chapin carpenter and ben folds and a a whole stroke extra that i was part of Um, you make some fun events so very (laughs) engaging i hope everyone can uh join us and uh, maybe fill that room uh where we've got the benefit of having you at csm and um very excited that you're joining us at, at APTA CSM in Colorado.
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be there. And, you know, the, at the end of the day, your music is also fun, right? So we try to make it fun. We try to make it engaging. And, you know, hopefully the takeaways will be that music is also more than fun. You know, that there's a really true benefit there. So I, I hope folks will join us and we have a full Roman, um, can have some fun in the process.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Brian. It's been delightful. I could talk to you for multiple more hours, but instead I'm going to just sing one thing that um, I'll blame you for, for everybody listening. The arcuate fasciculus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is, a, that is a, a neuroanatomy term and a hook that I will never get out of my head, I think, at this point. And we can thank, uh, we both can thank Ben Folds for that.
0: Thanks so much, and thank you, everyone, for listening in on this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed making it.